I know that Maryland has recently, I think, ended all their restrictions. So we don't technically, by Maryland standards, need masks and all that stuff, but I personally still like them because it's just gangster. <laughs> I like it. I feel like, I feel like Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe or something when I'm wearing a mask. I don't look like them, but I feel like them, so. Don't you dare say nothing. I just want to add my words briefly, Tim. Brother, it's been a blessing to have you be in the church. We talked a little bit yesterday in text, and I've had the privilege of meeting your wife through the premarital process, and you did good. You chose wisely. But I remember talking to you about it before all of it and just walking you through it. And now to see you have a family, uh, brother, it's, it's encouraging. And to go to a church where there are people that I know and love there at that church, I'm just, just glad, man. I hope you get to use that gift, and I hope you come down back to visit. It'll be a little different. You know, we do things a little differently than they do in Frederick, so <laughs> we might. But I think it'll be, be good for them and good for you all. All right, well, we have been in a in a series in Romans 9, and I want to just say that I think as a church, those who are present in the room and those still at home watching on the camera, that you all have done an amazing job processing a very difficult doctrine. It is not something that people take lightly, and some people are offended at the very notion of that. You all have done an amazing job through your questions, through your participation. I mean, Mike doesn't always get to ask every question, but I typically will go back afterwards, after the sermon's over, because I have the same app that has the questions come in. So I'll go back and read what wasn't asked, and I'm always encouraged and challenged by this. I knew that when we got to this chapter, that for some people it would be somewhat of a challenge. And I, I imagine that it may still be afterwards. Early on in Romans 9, I made a comment to this effect. I said that I had struggles, too, with some of the theology, but I have worked through my issues. And I said it as a passing comment, but I never really explained for me personally how did I work through the issue of God doing something like choosing people that not everyone is going to go to heaven? I've shared with you that I know people who didn't make it. There are people that I know that are not with the Lord. But I never really explained what that was like for me, what was that process like? What, what happened theologically for me that helped me understand this, for some difficult truth from the Bible? So what I wanted to do today was, we have one last section to finish in Romans 9. I'm gonna do that next week. I wanted today to go to a different passage that Jesus said some things that will help us see the parallels between what Paul's saying in Romans 9 and what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10. And it was in these four verses, and not just these, but in John 10, particularly verses 14 through 18, 
is where the Lord helped me resolve some of my issues related to God choosing some to experience his or some are going to experience his wrath and some are going to experience his mercy and forgiveness. There's a couple verses in this particular chapter that help me make a connection. And I want to share that this morning in hopes that it will benefit those of you who may be struggling with the same thing or maybe have resolved it, but would like another perspective to help you deepen your resolve on the issue of God's sovereignty and our free will. And how does that work? We're going to see three significant truths that will connect to what we have been seeing from Romans 9. And we're going to start off kind of broad, sort of the duh theology. It's like, duh, okay, we get that. And we're going to work our way in and get closer and closer and closer to what we're seeing and what we have been taught in Romans chapter 9. Now, let me say this quickly about John 10 so you can have context as to what's happening, because we're going to jump in right into the tail end of a discussion that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and other Jewish people that are there. And Jesus is explaining that he is the good shepherd, that he's using an analogy of him being a shepherd and people being the sheep. And he's going back and forth with the Pharisees, trying to help them understand who he is in relation to people. So Jesus is the shepherd. He saves and protects, and he's the true shepherd. He, he makes reference to other people that are not the true shepherds. They, they come in and they try to steal, but Jesus is the gate in which all true faithfulness goes into. So Jesus is making a claim that he is the one that protects the people, and he's the true shepherd of all. And this is somewhat of a back and forth conversation. And then he gets to sort of the tail end of this conversation, which we'll pick up in verses 14 through 18 this morning. And this will be our text for today. He says this, beginning in verse 14, and I quote, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will also listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down, lay it down on my own, and I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Now, the language is different than Romans 9, but the theological premise for what we've been learning in Romans 9 is right here. Right here. Now, it's important to know that Paul doesn't make things up, right? Paul's not sitting around like, all right, man, what does this church need? Let me see. Let me just write down this. This isn't a grocery list, a theological grocery list for Paul. Paul's not making things up, but instead he's explaining in greater detail truths that Jesus taught to some degree in generalities because he knew that later on he would have other people explain further what he was communicating. Jesus kept it simple for a purpose. The truths that we're going to see in John 10 are intrinsically connected to what we have been seeing in Romans 9. Now, there's three main truths, and then in the first point, first truth, there's two kind of 
points underneath that. So the first main truth is the duh, right? This is the duh theological truth. The first point is this. Non-Jews have been chosen to be saved. Non-Jews, which they call Gentiles, have been chosen to be saved. Let's look again at verse 14. Jesus says, As I am the good shepherd, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen, which I, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So this analogy that Jesus is talking about is, is, is salvation. There are sheep as an analogy. And Jesus says that I lay down my life for them, and there's some that I need to get that are not here, that are not present. Now, this analogy of salvation, it happens in two main ways that we'll see in the passage. The first is relational. Salvation is relational. Looking again at verse 14, Jesus starts off saying, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. So here Jesus is using an analogy, and it's a relational dynamic because sheep care about significantly, and they protect the shepherd. If you go back to the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, David, when they were looking for him, was out killing wild beasts that killed sheep. Like now, in our day and age, you know, sheep herding is not something that is very common, depending on where you live in the country, particularly in the world. So it seems like a, a, something that's not an analogy that we would use. But what Jesus is saying is the relational connection I have to people, sheep are people, who belong to God is one of protector. I protect them. I protect them. But then he goes a step further and he says this, I know my own and my own know me. So the relational dynamic is not just that Jesus protects but that he knows the sheep and the sheep know him. This is an important dynamic. Jesus didn't say, I know the sheep. He said, they know me and I know them. So this means for every genuine believer, there's a reason why you're still a believer. Despite circumstances in your life, they may challenge the fact if you should believe in them or not. It's because you know his voice. You know this is truth even if I don't like some of what's going on. This is truth and this is not. It's not just that he knows you, but he says you know him. There's a relational dynamic. It's a relational dynamic. He's the shepherd. He protects and he knows the people and the people know him. That's relational. That's an important point. You know the Lord. Many in this room know the Lord. You do things because you know the Lord. And there are people in this room who do not know the Lord. And so you do things because you do not know the Lord. And to him, that's non-negotiable. Either you're the sheep and he's the shepherd, or you're not. Either he knows you and you know him, or you don't. The relational dynamic is him saying, listen, I know them and they know me. And then he goes a step even further. 
In verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father. So he says, I know the sheep and the sheep know me just as I know the father and the father knows me. So the relational connection that Jesus is making is his relationship to us is similar to his relationship to the father. We know him the way he knows the father and the father knows him. He's saying it's all connected. Just as almost saying in the same way. So I know my own and my own know me paraphrasing. In the same way, the father knows me and I know the father. The relational connection from God is that he knows us and we know him. And by default, it's similar to him knowing the father and the father knowing him. There is a relational dynamic that God, the father and Jesus, the son say these people. We know and they know us. And by no, he's not talking about intellectual ability. He's not talking about they're familiar. He's not talking about people who will grab a census and put out religion and just put Christian because the rest say Catholic and Muslim or other or atheist. And that's the most logical one for them. He's saying, no, it doesn't mean no is in like you understand that he exists. No, no, no is in you believe in him and you live for him. There's a difference. He's not talking about just what people say. He's talking about what people do, what people believe. My sheep know my voice. He's talking about the people who believe in me. They can they can they know who I am. They can see things happening in the culture and be like, nah, not today, Satan. There's a relational dynamic to salvation, but then there is a transactional relationship. He says it at the end of verse 15. He says this, just as the father knows me and I know the father, here's the transaction. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Jesus says this and it's kind of a I mean, in the context, it seems like a passing comment. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's not a passing comment. Jesus, in a sentence, is describing the fate of gazillions of people. That many people in that one sentence, I lay down my life for the sheep. He is describing a the greatest transactional event in all of eternal history. The greatest transactional event. This is a significant reality. And we'll get at it by answering this question. Why does he lay down his life for the sheep? But many of us would say so that our sins could be forgiven. Absolutely. But we have to always attach. Well, why do our sins need to be forgiven? Because we're sinners. Yeah, but why? Because God is angry at sin and sinful people. So something must happen for God not to be angry towards people who sin. And when we're talking about, let's be realistic, right? This is church. It's Sunday. It's even July 4th. George Washington never told a lie. We can't. 
the, y'all never heard that in school? George Washington never told a lie? Y'all need to stop reading the McGraw-Hill textbooks. Don't make me laugh. The transaction is that God is angry towards sin and people who commit sin. We saw that two couple weeks ago, that man's inclination, every inclination is to do evil. So he lays down his life for the sheep so that God would no longer be angry at those sheep and they would not experience his wrath. If God were not angry at sin, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die for it. He wouldn't need to. So I'm going to give you two theological categories. We've been very theological in Romans 9 because of the way it presents itself. So I want to give you two theological categories to understand this transactional moment. Of the, and then I'm going to explain what they mean, all right? Two theological words. I'm going to explain how they work, all right? These are what you hear every day, but I want to give you this because it's good sometimes for you to just take in some of the theology. Some of you will be familiar with this. All right, so there's two kind of theological terms that largely describe this transaction. The first is called expiation. Okay, theological term expiation, right? The prefix ex means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. All right, so in biblical terms, it has to do with the taking away of guilt through some form of payment. That's what expiation is. It's, it's the removal of guilt for a form of payment. So expiation acts towards people is taking away their guilt for an atonement, it's expiation. So we would see that as the cross. On the cross, Jesus expiated. He took away, removed the guilt from us. And he placed it on himself. There's another term, which is probably more popular, called propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation has to do with the object of expiation. Who's this for? Who's this about? You would say it was for us. No, it's about God. The prefix pro means for. So propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude. So expiation removes the guilt from some. And propitiation is the satisfied anger of God because of that expiation. So it has to do with God being appeased. He's no longer angry at said people. So Jesus dying on the cross, the removal of our guilt is the expiation on our behalf. God responding with forgiveness instead of wrath is now the propitiation. His anger is satisfied. And here's the proof. The cross proves that Jesus expiated, he removed the guilt by taking the penalty for us. That was the transaction. I will give my life for there. The resurrection proves that God's anger was propitiated because if Jesus hadn't come back from the dead, we'd be in a lot of trouble. We would be wondering, did God really accept his sacrifice? 
because the only people that die, die because of sin. So if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, then that means we can't prove that he didn't sin. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves that God accepted his expiation for us. And his anger is now propitiated because Jesus rose from the dead and then continued to teach and then give his spirit to let everyone know your sins are forgiven. You are right with the father because I have done the work. I have removed your guilt, taken his wrath, and he has removed his wrath and given you grace. This is the transaction. Now, in Romans 9, the means of salvation by this relational and transactional is it's somewhat implied rather than outright explained. So Paul uses phrases like this in Romans 9. Uh, it talks about the Israelites being cut off from Christ. Right? Why would you be cut off from Christ? Because he is the way to salvation. It talks about promises given to the Jews and it culminates in, he's saying, in physical descent came the Christ. So remember, he's talking about God gave the Jews the law and these things, and, and, and also the Christ came from them. Well, why would that be important? Well, because the Christ expiated, propitiated. He removed our guilt and removed God's wrath towards us. He doesn't outright say it, but it's implied in Romans 9 that this transaction is attached to Christ and Christ alone. As we heard before, it's why Paul, even though he grieved over the fact that Israel, he, that, that he couldn't exchange himself for them. He would rather give up his entrance into heaven so that they could go. It couldn't happen because Paul doesn't have the holiness, the perfection to be able to atone for anyone else's sin. He doesn't. The last part of salvation is that the people who benefit, who benefits from this relational transactional reality. Verse 16. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. So again, this is analogical. Jesus is saying, I have other sheep, people that are not of this sheep pen, that are not Jewish. I have other people. I have to bring them too. I have to bring them. Now, they didn't understand what this meant when Jesus said it. Because they didn't have a concept for, unless you were converted to Judaism, right? What they call God-fearing Greeks. People who would, and the Bible has these people. Sometimes, uh, the, uh, remember the, the, um, the centurion who had his, who wanted his servant healed. And they said, listen, this is a good dude. He built a, he built a temple for us. This is a guy who respects the Jewish tradition. He respects the Jewish theology. You look at Cornelius in Acts 10, a centurion. He's a God-fearing. He respects, prefers. Okay, if you became like them, they had a concept for it, but this isn't what God was talking about. God said, no, no, I'm not. I have other sheep that are not going to become Jewish like you. They're going to become faithful like Abraham. So he says this, I have other sheep, not of this pen. And he says, I must bring them. I must bring them. They will listen to his voice. They will listen to my voice. So there are non-Jewish people that Jesus says he's going to be the shepherd. The relational, transactional aspect of salvation 
it's going to affect them. They're going to hear his voice in the same way some of the ethnic Jews hear his voice. He says, I need to bring them in too. For what purpose? So that there will be one flock, one shepherd. So all these people, Jew, Gentile, they're going to hear my voice, are going to believe in me. And I will be their shepherd. I'll protect them. Here's how Romans 9 says it. We remember this a few weeks ago. Romans 9 kind of says it like this. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, beginning of verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So you see, he's making the distinction. Not all the people who are Israel are actually Israel. That neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. He's talking about ethnic people. You know, when some you know, some people, if you, it's similar, like if you have a good friend, like they, I know in my, when I grew up, I would call people my cousin that had no blood relations. Yeah. You, I remember getting into fights with people, and why you mess with my cousin? I just met the dude a month ago. We just cool. <laughs> Ain't my cousin at all. I wouldn't see him at any family reunion, right? But I attributed a relational dynamic to him, and for that reason, I was willing to do things that I wouldn't even do for some of my own cousins because I felt closer to this person. These aren't people that are all related by blood, but by the blood. When I got married, I had 10 groomsmen. And I remembered thinking through how we're going to do this. Because I actually had 15 or 16 that I were on deck. And I had some relatives that did not make the cut. And in fact, as a matter of fact, even in the guest list, everybody who's married knows that guest list is the mark of the beast. When you get married, that guest list, man, oh, man. I remember me and Betsy, we went to, we got, we had our reception at uh, Martin's Crosswinds in, in Greenbelt. And we went there, put the deposit down. We got a room that could hold 300. We thought that would be sufficient. That would be good. We went back a month later to follow up and give another portion of the deposit. And we met with a person who was different than the lady that we first talked with. And they said, hey, we just want to let you know that she was fired for misconduct. So we was like, oh, I, mean, I don't know the lady. OK, cool. I mean, uh, I mean, she wasn't my cousin, you know, so. so. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, I went through the plan that I remember that she gave us, and they said, I'm sorry. What you paid for is not actually the plan. Your plan can only hold 170. Oh, wow. And I said, I'm sorry, hold on. You know, so I know sometimes, you know, get a little waxy. You might not have heard that right. Would you, you said, how many? 170. I said, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. No, we paid for 300. Yeah. I'm talking about the movie, Sparta. We paid for 300. <laughs> God was like, I'm sorry, man. I said, okay, fine, no big deal, man. Can we get our deposit back? He said, I'm sorry, it's past the due date of being able to return your deposit. The mark of the beast. So we left there disappointed and had to go through and redo the whole list to try to willow it down to 170 people. And there were people that in that moment, that's when you have to realize, hey, I was friends with this person at this portion of my life. But from this portion on, these people have been more influential to me. 
And you have to make those decisions of who you're going to let come and who's going to participate. And it's all about, man, these people are going to be offended because this is my actual family. But when you look into the actual relational dynamic, these people are more my family than these people. It's the same way with God. These people, these people are family, not these people. And they're family because they have the faith of Abraham, not the blood of Abraham. You see, the ethnic Jews thought the blood of Abraham is what saves us in. And the true is, no, the blood of Christ is what saves you. So this is how Paul lays this out. Is that on the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Verse eight of Romans nine. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. So this is the first truth that we see is that non-Jewish people will be saved. Let's zoom in, because here's where it gets more interesting. Verse 17. This is why the father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my own. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Here's what Jesus is saying. Is that I've chosen to lay down my life and take it up again so that people can be saved. So what does this mean in relation to Romans 9? If we accept Jesus as our salvation, then we've already accepted by default that God will punish someone and not punish others. For sin. So by default, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, by default, you accept the doctrine of election that God chooses someone to experience wrath and some others not to. Now, think about this. If Jesus saved, if everyone went to heaven because of Jesus's sacrifice, then by default, we are still accepting that God chose to punish someone and not punish others for sin. Even if Jesus died for, if everyone went to heaven and it was only because of Jesus, then by default, we accept election that God chose for someone to be punished and someone not to be. This is inherent in the gospel. Now, it's not, the election is not the gospel, but the implicit logic is we accept that God chose for someone to experience sin and someone not going to experience the wrath of their sin. To truly understand the cross, we must first understand that it was a choice and then it was an action. It was a choice first. Let's look back at verse 17. Here's what Jesus says. This is why the father loves me. Now, Jesus begins this section by saying this is why the father loves him. I don't think he's communicating. This is the only reason why the father loves him. But he's making an emphatic statement. 
that the father loves Jesus. Why? Because he made a choice to lay down his life and to take it back up again. Now, again, passing comment, explosive reality. Laying down my life for Jesus meant I am experiencing the full wrath of God. In other words, Jesus elected himself to go to hell so that other people would not have to. This is what Jesus is saying. I lay down my life. I am going I am choosing to accept the punishment. So that other people don't. Jesus is saying the father loves and approves of the son giving his life. This choosing, this electing. We must remember that Jesus, and you've heard me say this before, out of all the ways that God could have chosen for salvation to happen, Jesus made the choice. He chose for himself to be punished. Now listen, everyone who is going to be judged by God and experience hell for their sins is going to get the full wrath of God for their sin and their sin alone. Jesus said, I'm going to take the full wrath of God for everyone's sin. Because he didn't have sin of his own. So what he's choosing to do is to, to put himself in harm's way so that other people would not have to. This is essentially the doctrine of election where God chooses for some to experience his mercy. Jesus elected himself to experience wrath. Functionally, Jesus, for lack of a better description, went to hell so that other people didn't have to. And by hell, I don't mean the location. I just mean the full wrath of God for sin. It was Jesus's choice. And I love that he says, lay it down and take it back up again, right? He keeps them together. From an eternal perspective, Jesus never chose to die. He chose to die and then live. It was always the same thing. We separate those, the cross and the resurrection. And it's like, no, they're together. Because if one doesn't happen, then the other is. And if one isn't true, the other is not true. They never are separated. Jesus says, I lay down my life and I have the right to take it back up again. I have the right to lay it down and I have. This is a choice that Jesus is making. I am choosing. I am electing myself to experience the punishment for sins that I did not do. This is striking because to understand the cross, we have to understand it's first a choice and then it's an action. So what does that mean for us practically? Whenever we wrestle with the fact that some people are going to go to hell because of their sin, and we struggle with that, and we even question if God is a good God for allowing it. And again, remember, it's usually the people that we care about. No one's defending people who rape kids and do all this other stuff. No one's wanting them to go to heaven, except maybe the people that love them. The majority of us, it's the people we care about. 
And it makes sense. We should feel that way. We should feel that way. But whenever we wrestle with that, that Jesus is allowing some people to go to hell and experience the punishment for their sin and other people are not, we have to also remember that he chose that for himself in greater detail. To be honest, if, if, if Jesus didn't die on the cross the way he did and experience the wrath of God, to me, it would be, it's a good argument to be like, man, that's not fair. I think it's a helpful, I mean, I don't think it was, it still would be not right because God determines what's good, right? But it would make more sense to me the argument of God not being fair that people are going to go to hell and who can resist his will, right? The argument would make sense to me, but the fact that Jesus chose to experience that, to leave the eternal intimacy that he has with the Father that we'll never understand, to leave that eternal dwelling place, having never experienced or participated in sin, and saying, I'm going to take the full wrath of God, which is the full wrath of himself. They're different persons in the Trinity, but they're the same essence. Jesus knows what the full wrath of God entails, and he chose, he elected himself to receive that so that others don't. When we believe the gospel, by default, we accept that God chooses someone to be punished and some not to be. When we wrestle with the goodness of God, let's add this question to that wrestle. Is it fair that Jesus should be punished for our sin? Is that fair? Is that right? We have to add that to the equation. God didn't leave himself out of the equation. He put himself right in it of his own choice. Now, this is somewhat of an unbiblical logic, but I want to make this point. Even if someone believes that God allows evil in the world and is, in fact, wrong to punish people for being evil. There are people who think this. Even if that were true. In other words, saying God is not a good God because he allows evil and suffering and then punishes people for that. Even if that were true. Which it is not. But let's just say for the sake of this discussion, that's a true statement those same people would have to deal with the fact that that same God put himself through a worse punishment than everyone else. You still have to deal with the fact that that God that you think is not good because he's punishing people for sin that they did commit chose to punish himself to a greater detail for sin that he did not commit. So even if it's true that God isn't a good God for letting people go to hell, then we have to wrestle with and deal with the fact that that same not good God allowed himself to go to hell. And experience a wrath that no one else could. It changes the discussion. 
when I struggled with the reality of knowing that I'm going to know some people who didn't make it, to be personal. In 2013, I went to visit my uncle who was dying of cancer, and he was in hospice. And I asked everyone if they could, if they could leave the room. I wanted to share the gospel with him alone. And to my shame, I wasn't bold enough to do it when I knew that his intellectual capacities could clearly understand it. But I thought, you know what? I had to do it now because he's still alive and he can still understand some things. So I shared the gospel with him. And all he could do was make sounds. Shortly after that, I left. And then before I got home, he was in Towson. Before I got home, my mother called and said, he's dead, he died. Now, I don't know if he accepted it. I don't know if he understood it. But I had to wrestle with the fact that he may not have made it. And this was like a cool uncle. When I was a kid, he would call me and tell me all these dirty jokes, <laughs> all these Richard Pryor jokes, the same ones I don't tell my kids. But he just was a, I loved him. He used to give me and my wife all this furniture when we first got married, and it was my dude. And I was shocked that he died. He was like 58. But I had to wrestle with the fact that he may not have made it. And the comfort that I got was that, Jesus, you punished yourself. You chose to experience the full wrath that you know, we don't know what hell is like. We only have what the Bible tells us. And it's sometimes in analogies and things that we, we know it's going to be hot and it's going to hurt. But Jesus knows exactly what it means to experience the full wrath of God. And he chose to put himself in that place. Now, someone will say, yeah, but. Jesus and the Father's will are always connected. So Jesus technically couldn't have not done the Father's will. I mean, they're always connected. Well, then we got to talk about the Garden of Gethsemane then. Then we got to go there. Because Jesus was not just zippity doo on the way to the cross. After an angel came to comfort him. It said he prayed even harder, and the sweat became drops of blood, the most discouraged angel in all eternity. <laughs> he had to take that one to the chin, or to the wing. Because whatever he intended to do, I don't know, I don't got him saying, hey, the father says you're not crying and praying hard enough. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is faced with the fundamental reality of standing before God and experiencing the full wrath. And that is the only moment in all of the Gospels where he said, if it's possible, can I not do this? That wrath was unthinkable. And Jesus, for the one and only scene in the Bible, was like, man. I really don't want to experience it. I'm not saying it's easy, but recognizing that Jesus chose for himself to experience the wrath of God when he, I know he didn't have to, it changes how I think, whether I think it's fair or not that other people experience the wrath for their sins. That may not work for you, but for me, it changes things some. And I realize, like, man, unfair. Jesus, that was unfair to you. But it wasn't unfair in the theological sense because it was his choice. So the second truth, the first truth is that Non-Jewish people will be saved. The second truth is Jesus elected himself to be punished for us, to be our expiation, to remove our guilt and satisfy, propitiate the anger of the Father. Last truth. Last truth. It's seen in this question in Romans 9. This is the last sermon I did two weeks ago. Remember this question in Romans 9:19. He said this, you will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? Okay, that's the tension. A tension, I think, is somewhat resolved in John 10. So in Romans 9, it makes it clear who can resist his will. So why does he find fault? Why does he punish people if some people can't resist his will anyway? So it says, you know, obviously, who are you to argue back with God? And there's this tension. Well, how do we deal with our own free will and then God's sovereignty? If you can't resist his will, then is it free will at all? That's the age old argument, the age old discussion that I think, at least here, is resolved to some degree. Let's look again at Romans. Let's look again at John 10, 18. He says this. We're familiar with the first part. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my father. Okay, so here we have at the end of verse 18, Jesus acknowledges that the choice that he's making on his own is a command of the father. Okay, let's let's, let's step back logically. We know that no one can resist his will, right? That's Romans 9, for who can resist his will? We looked at Job 42.2 when Job said, I know no plan of yours can be thwarted, right? So the, the theological reality is you cannot resist his will. Their logic is, well, then why does he still find fault? But that's not Jesus's logic here. See, no one can resist his will, including Jesus. Jesus is acknowledging that my own choice, it is my choice to lay it down and take it back up. And then he says, that's a command from the father. So what we have is a command that cannot be resisted. 
but Jesus acknowledging that I do this of my own free will. So what we have in the eternal God had free will and sovereignty. This is a command from God that he said that cannot be resisted. But Jesus said, this is my own free will. I lay it down. I take it back up again. The tension in this passage does not ask the question, well, who can resist his will? No, Jesus says, look, this is my choice. But yet I can't resist the will of the Father. Again, oh, they're the same thing. Let's talk about Gethsemane. In verse 18, Jesus says, the Father's will, which is a command, is present and it cannot be resisted. But Jesus is also saying his laying down his life is his own choice. So here we have the tension of Romans 9. Who can resist his will? Paul doesn't blame God. He said, look, it's not the word of God that all Israel isn't saved. Jesus doesn't push back on the fact that Jesus never denies that because the father said it and it can't be resisted, that it's not his own free will. He acknowledges that this is my choice, my decision, even though God has decreed it, can't go against the grain. That tension is there even in the Godhead. You see this, but it's not a tension that's there. It's a reality. Sovereignty can't resist that. Free will, still my choice. Now, how that all works out, we'll find out in eternity. He didn't leave us the knowledge of that here, but it's helpful to see that the tension of Romans 9 and the tension in some of our hearts about God's goodness based on some going to hell is not there. For Jesus, it's my choice, my decision, but God's command, which I can't resist. He didn't struggle with that reality. The biblical authors, in fact, use that reality as part of their gospel presentation. Acts 4, 27 and 28 says this. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. So here it is. They understand that, like, listen, what happened to him was predestined. It was your will. It was your will. It was predestined, but it was Jesus's choice. Our choices matter. Our choices matter. Election doesn't remove that. And the purpose of election is to really give God glory for salvation, not to question if God is good because of the way he chose us to bring it about. Don Carson, a great theologian, says this about John chapter 10, the verses that we looked at. Here's what Don Carson's perspective is. If you don't know him, you don't even care what, this, what he says. I like the dude. He's kind of sharp. He says this, Jesus's point is that the sacrificial death of the shepherd, when it occurs, must not be taken as an accident of fate or merely as a tragedy perpetuated by misguided men, but as the father's plan. Part of the son's obedience to that plan is his consummate awareness that he lays down his life of his own accord. 
the authority he has received from his father sanctions not only this, but his own resurrection. So at one are the father and the son in this plan. When in rising from the dead, Jesus takes up his life again. Nothing occurs other than the father glorifies him. So this tension is there. It's just it's part of their plan. And that same free will and sovereignty that exists in the Godhead exists in God's creation over humanity. It's still there. It's there and will be there because, as we saw earlier, so that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, does that make it easy? No. I had to wrestle with this. And I did, throw, I did so through the same tears that you saw a few moments ago. So when I teach this, sometimes I'm a, I'm a passionate guy. But that passion isn't dismissive of the struggle. Because I had a similar struggle. And can sometimes still struggle with certain things in the way God does them. But this isn't supposed to rattle my faith. It's supposed to create it. Let me explain why. Because all it does is show that, man, they're just things that don't make sense to us that we don't know. And we're supposed to add that to the list of many other things that we just don't know and don't make sense. Don't be that person that it has to make sense for for you to trust God. Because it doesn't make sense that Jesus chose to die for us when he could have chosen any other way to bring about salvation. But he chose that way specifically. And his hell that he experienced is far greater than any, what anyone else will experience. But at the very least, the people who do not make it to heaven will have at least done things that they deserve some form of punishment. Jesus, not so much. He did it out of love for those of us who know his voice. So salvation is for Jews and non-Jews. Number two, God elected himself to be punished. And third, free will and sovereignty exist even in the Trinity, at least in this scene. It's for our glory, for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would if there are any of us that are struggling with this reality, where I was unable to comfort them, I pray that you would. Where I was unable to persuade them, I pray that you would. For, for me, for me personally, your death on the cross and your choice, your electing of yourself is a game changer for me. But it might not be for everyone else. This might have confused or maybe angered people even more. For me, this resolves the tension that I had because you placed yourself in harm's way when you didn't deserve it, just so that you could, we could hear your voice. 
and that you know us and we know you relationally like you know the Father and the Father knows you. I, some of this stuff is just too wonderful for me. I do the best that I can to communicate it, but man, Lord, you, you, are, you just are in, a, in just a, a league of your own. It is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is incredible to try to explain things that you lay out in your word. So I pray, Lord, where I fail to accomplish the goal, would your spirit, would you by your spirit accomplish that in the hearts of your sons and daughters? And I pray as we finish up the rest of Romans 9 next week, which focuses solely on the Gentiles being saved with the Jews and that being your choice, that we would, we would not be the person that needs to resolve, particularly an issue like this, for you to be a good God. For you've already demonstrated, whether we believe this doctrine or not, you've already demonstrated your goodness to us in many ways. May we not hold you hostage to the things that we don't like but may we celebrate you for the things that we don't deserve. For your glory and our good, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we have a, a few questions up in there. Batter up. The first one. Um, is uh, from a person that's uh, new. They're reading through their uh, membership manual, and they notice the phrase, essentially reformed. Um, what does that mean? Uh, that's an interesting question for right now, but um, essentially reformed, we just mean, so reformed theology is a, is a, is a broad spectrum, and we're essentially reformed in that. We don't subscribe to everything that, would be considered reformed for the most part. Like, so like we're not Presbyterian in our church government. We, you know, a lot of reform, re reformed people, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them like baptized babies. We don't. We're reformed particularly in the way we think salvation happens. You know, like there's like a, what's called the order salutis, the order of salvation. That's another theory. It's like, you know, election, gospel call, regeneration, Justification, adopt, adoption, sanctification. You know, there's all these categories in which the way we think people come to salvation, we largely agree with the we'll call the reformed perspective. And so when we say we're essentially reformed, it means that we agree with a lot of the reformed understanding of salvation and and life, but we don't agree with all of it. Thank you. Um, the next question is. Um, <clears throat> Is a two-parter. Um, a two-first. Yeah. Um, can you further explain how God's electing to carry out his wrath on Jesus and not someone else then extends to the election of believers? I'm confused uh, since it seems that it seems to be a choice by God concerning himself, i.e. God elected himself to take the punishment. So how does that show he elects others with free will to receive salvation or not. So the point is not a direct one-to-one. -one. The point is that the essence of election where, God, where someone is chosen to experience punishment for their sin and others are not is present in Jesus' decision. So it's very difficult to make a one-to-one -one. like 
This is exactly like this. It's not exactly the same, but the point is that the premise of free will and sovereignty, of choice, and the, and the point was not that it's the same. The point was that we must remember that Jesus chose for himself, elected himself to experience the greatest punishment. So when we wrestle with the fact that others will experience that, we know that Jesus chose that for himself and he didn't commit any sin. So it's not a one-to-one, -one, it's just the premise, the theological premise is, is there in that text and the free will and sovereignty. Is it a one-to-one? -one? Of course. We don't, I mean, we can't, like, you know how people try to explain the Trinity. Well, think of like a hard-boiled egg and then the shell in it. It, you just can't, you know, an ice cube is water. You just can't come up with a great, I mean, it, uh, we're trying, right? We try our best, but you just can't explain the Trinity. Like, okay, so then how do you explain Jesus being, how do you explain that God died when God cannot die? How do you explain that, that Jesus died on the cross? He was still fully God when he was, it wasn't like he said, okay, I'm fully God, but I'm, no, how does God die? How does God die, period? Not even, whether it's for sin or not, just die. Like, what is this, you know, the God of war, like this chronos? Like, it's just like this reality that there's just things that don't make sense. And so that's what, that's what I'm trying to help you understand. The theological premise for choosing is there. And someone being punished and someone not being punished. It's a great question. So this next question is, um, <clears throat> did Jesus experience the full wrath of God exclusively as a man or as fully God and fully man? That's a great question. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? The Bible never teaches that Jesus wasn't fully God and wasn't fully man. In fact, Philippians 2 is the great, Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 is sort of the, to me, in the New Testament is like the greatest treatise, you know, some say it's a hymn, on that part. Like, he did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to, right? So even though he was fully God, he did not allow himself to participate to be fully God. He didn't. So that's why Jesus is tired. You know, John, Jesus, God doesn't get tired. Like, all the things that we think about don't happen. God is not in heaven like, all right, look, man, I'm taking a nap. Jesus, you and the spirit, y'all watch over things. I'll be some asleep for a couple hundred years. That just doesn't happen, right? God doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get tired. You know, when, when the Bible describes God with these anthropomorphisms in the Old Testament, like these describes him like humanistic terms, first, first John 4, God is spirit, right? He's not like us in the same way, but he describes himself in ways that we can relate to it. Mm -hmm. so, so having said that, the Bible never at once says Jesus isn't fully God. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, and I would even say this, there's no way Jesus could experience the full wrath of God for everyone's sin unless he was God. You know what I'm saying? You've you seen that movie, uh, A Few Good Men, when, 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 when uh, I forgot Tom Cruise's character is going back and forth with John. You can't handle the truth. Like you, you just can't handle the wrath of God unless you are God. You just can't handle it. Now, everyone's going to be punished for their own sin, but for everyone's sin? How hot is that? Right? You just can't. And so, so to answer the question, I don't think we can separate that Jesus was fully God there. I just don't fully understand how that works. Right. 
because he's fully God and fully man, and he experienced that, on the, there's no way he could have done that if he wasn't fully God, because you just can't handle it. And again, so there's a, an eternal transaction that we can't see, because there's a lot of people who died on the cross. In fact, Jesus was hung between two thieves, right? The issue was not he experienced the physical pain for dying on the cross, because thousands of men, hundreds of men were crucified by the Romans. That doesn't do it. Shoot the disciples. Peter was crucified upside down. So there's a lot of people that experience crucifixion. That's not even the point. There's something that happened. The punishment, and this is the thing, every spit in the face, every uh, thorn in the temple, every lash from the whip was all a statement that Jesus and God have never come close to even imagining. They've always had an eternal intimacy of being the same essence but a different person. Every lash, every whip probably had eternity in heaven weeping. I imagine these angels long to see this. I imagine it being like, oh my gosh. Because that relational dynamic, it's, it's a whole different level. And we can't understand that because we just don't know that dynamic. So every aspect of Jesus, everything that touched him, that hurt him, was a, re was a reaction to his wrath that would have been a million times worse than if it happened to us. Because he's God, he leaves an eternal dwelling place. Hebrews 10, you didn't, bulls and goats did not satisfy you, but you prepared a body for me. So Jesus came to be, so this is the thing, all those killings of animals in the Old Testament that God allowed for, he allowed for that because he knew when Jesus comes, his death is going to be sufficient for all of it. So this is just preparing for that, for him to be the Lamb of God. It's just, it's just a crazy, and again, again, it's one of those things like, how do I wrap my mind around it? But he was fully God and fully man on that cross, that's for certain. I just can't wrap my mind around it. I just, my, my default position is if the Bible says that I agree with it. And if it seems like it contradicts, then I agree with both. Or I wrestle to try to figure out why does it seem like it contradicts. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to be like, oh, this is, no, nah, it's just, okay, I believe both. That's a turkey sandwich and that's a ham sandwich. I going to taste like both to me when I bite it. <laughs> There's just going to be things that just, <laughs> and we can get really theological, but a lot, let me tell you something, a lot of the theological stuff is just speculation. It's just speculation based on people who have more learning and this stuff. It's speculation. At the end of the day, all of us don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> all of us don't know. We're just all trying to figure it out, trying to honor the Lord. And some stuff sounds better than others. But none of us really know answers to these questions for real. We're all just trying. I don't care who they are. We're all just figuring it out. Just some people have studied it longer and know the original languages than you and I do. Well, I know the original language, but I don't have to study it. Some people do. But at the end of the day, good luck. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you. Uh, for this next question is, um, when accepting the doctrine of election and that God has predestined some to go to hell, um, it, can be, it can be easy to become cold towards those we perceive as under God's wrath. Mm, How do we maintain an expression of, right of love towards people God has assigned to hell? What's the point of loving them? Couple thoughts. That's a really good question and perspective. There's some stuff I would adjust about the language, but I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to answer the question. Couple thoughts. One, because God commands us to do that. Like there's never, like in the New Testament, 
You got a couple examples. Matthew 7, 12. Here's what Jesus says. You know, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Right. And then he says this, for this is the law and the prophets. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. This is what Jesus is saying. Whatever, however you wish people would treat you, treat them that way. And he says, this is fulfilling the law and the prophets. So if, you, if every Christian really sat down and thought, how do I want to be treated? Mm. I want to be treated with respect. I want to be given the benefit of the doubt. I want, you make all these things, and God says, now do that to everyone else. <laughs> and he says, you fulfill the law and the prophets. You know what that means? We can't even do that. We can't even, we can't even sit down and think about how we want to treat people and make a concerted effort to do that. So, so, so that's commanded. Then you got the Good Samaritan narrative, right? Now, this is the thing you have to know about the Good Samaritan narrative. Okay, the Good Samaritan narrative is in Luke chapter 10, right? In Luke chapter 9, here's what you got to know to, to really process the Good Samaritan. I might have said this before. Repetition is the father of learning, a mother of learning, depending on how you carry it. All right. I know it's fast. I'm going micro machines. In Luke 9, Jesus sends two of his disciples to Samaria because he wants to go, he wants to prepare to go to Jerusalem there in Samaria to go through that way. They say, nope, when they find out he's going to Jerusalem, they're like, nah, he's not coming through here because Samaritans and Jews hate each other. So he's like, he's not coming through here. So he doesn't go. So he has to walk around to get there. That's Luke, that's Luke 9. Luke chapter 10, when a teacher of the law asks about who his neighbor is, Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. Now he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story because he knows that the people would be shocked that that dude is the hero, especially when you have a priest and a Levite that walk by the guy. I'm, I'm assuming people know the story. I'm not going to retell it. Luke, Luke 10, look it up. So, but he's making an assumption that the people that see the man lying on the ground bleeding, the, the Levite and the priest, are really religious people that would probably do something about it, but it's the, it's the Samaritan who they would have thought was the most vile person is the one who took him to the hotel, cleaned him up, said, look, I'm, I'm going to pay for him, give him some HBO, all that, right? Listen, make sure he's nice. Jesus says, go and be like that one, right? Then you got stuff like Galatians 6.10, you know, therefore, as we have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially those in the household of faith. Then you got like 2 Timothy 2, right? You get to 25 and 26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but perhaps he must teach, be gentle, instructing others with patience, so that the Lord may grant them repentance since they have been taken captive to do the devil's will. Right? So God's perspective is, look, these people don't need your wrath. They need the mercy that you've experienced. Amen. And that's what happens with a lot of Christians. We're ready to judge other people. But 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, look, I don't, why do we judge an outsiders? He said, I don't judge outsiders. God will judge the outsiders. He said, purge the evil from among you. So it's ironic to me that in our culture we spend so much time criticizing secular ideologies, philosophies, and people, when the Bible says you're supposed to judge one another, purge the evil from among you. God's going to judge them, folks. Paul said, what if I do judging outsiders? So again, our, 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 as Christians, we're not supposed to judge outsiders. We're supposed to treat them the way we want to be treated, imitating a good Samaritan, doing good to everyone, because that's what God commands for us to do. Everything that he, everything that he is, he doesn't command for us to do. Like no one, only a few People that are wild imagine that walking on water is something that Jesus commanded us to do. Like, and this is the thing. Some people will take what the Bible describes and make it what the Bible demands, and it's not always true. 
Just because it's a narrative and it's described doesn't mean we're supposed to do it. So when we're thinking about loving people, I think you have to go after the fact that, and this is where, let me give you a passage that will help you, whoever this person is. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, wonderful passage there. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. And, and when you read it, the best way to apply narratives to me is insert yourself into the story. Make yourself one of the characters. So what I do and what I've trained myself to do over the years is to see myself as the unmerciful servant in that story. And look at what he says to that person. Look at what he says. And that can help you shift the way you think about other people. Because I get it, and I get it. We live in a culture where a lot of, a lot of us are just, we're just offended. We're drawn. We're, we're discouraged. We're tired. We're angry. We're just, you know, these are all the full range of human emotions. But we have to always, listen, don't compare yourself to other believers. Compare yourself to, Christian, to the Bible. If you compare yourself to other people, you'll be like, all right, look, I, ain't, I, ain't, I'm not, I wouldn't post that online. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. But then in your heart, you're just judging everybody that does. So again, you have to compare yourself to the Bible. I think a lot of us compare ourselves to other believers or non-believers, and then we're doing real good. <laughs> when I compare myself to non-believers, it's like, shoot, I've grown a ton around here. And then I think of Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and I think, oh, which one am I right now? So anyway, good, great question. All right, another question is, um, <clears throat> how would you challenge in a loving way, uh, people who feel, uh, how would you challenge in a loving way how people feel about election, sovereignty, and free will, that that's not how it works, when they feel about those things. They feel about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the... So everyone's different, right? So we're not monolithic. So people will have different reasons why they don't like this reality. And so I, can't, I don't know if there's a blanket reason. Well, there is a blanket response to everyone. It's who are you, old man, to question God, right? You can always go back to the scriptures. And see, people get offended at that. It's like, right, then, you, then you have a bigger problem. Because then you're offended at God. Okay, so having said that, without knowing everyone's dynamic. I think for, for me, I have to go to the cross first. Yeah. I think when I try to explain all this other stuff, it's very subjective. So I may share my story. Like some narrative helps people. So I can identify with someone who struggles with that. And I will explain how I thought through it and how I got to where I am. But we have to go to the cross first. We cannot deviate from that and come up with some other explanation because the reality is that Jesus chose to be punished for, without having committed, doing anything to experience that. And I think we're so used to hearing that that we think that's how it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. and, and that is because that's the way God presented it to us. But if we step back and think about, did God really have to choose that? I mean, there's a couple passages in the scriptures. I think we're going to see one coming up. Where Jesus says like this, what, what if the Son of Man ascended back up to heaven? What, what if Jesus kind of did this and, and, and then what would you do? You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's a sense where like, no, this is a choice that God made, that Jesus made. And if anyone thinks that was easy, then you have to, again, examine the Garden of Gethsemane. Like that proves that like that was not an easy decision for Jesus. 
And the fact that the God kept that in the Bible, and if Jesus always does the will of the Father, then the Father wanted Jesus to pray that and keep that in the scriptures for, so that we could see that tension. I think we have to start with the gospel. We're, we're, we're overly, we're so familiar with God that we think we can judge God. We're so familiar with the gospel that we forget how amazing it is. So again, we have to back up sometimes and think about this, like, hold on. How in the world, why in the world did he do this? We have to start with the gospel first. And then I think, again, depending on people, then we can move to people's understanding of justice. So I usually go to legal things like, so what do you think about people who commit crimes? Should they be punished for those crimes? You know, you go down the list of stuff. And that, so again, there's, just, there's ways to do it. But I would say in short, I think you've got you to gotta help people understand how the gospel and Jesus being punished on our behalf, expiating, the guilt, removing the guilt from us is huge. But we're so familiar with it that we don't even understand the significance of it. And so we just think it's a byproduct rather than it's the product. Okay, um, this question. Can somebody um, grab me a couple of waters, please? If anybody can grab me three little waters, I appreciate it. Thank you. It says in verse 16, it says, I must bring them also. So is it okay to think about that bringing as our process of salvation for believers? So is it, so I think I understand what's being asked. I think... I mean, I think so what Jesus is saying there essentially is that there are other people that are not like the distinction he's making. And it's a main distinction. This is what uh, Ephesians three talks about, the mystery of the Gentiles. There's a main thread theme in the New Testament that non-Jewish people are going to be saved. I mean, that's a major thread. I mean, you look at Galatians two when when Peter got up and and because he saw the Judaizers coming, the Jews coming, and he was afraid of how they would think of him eating with Gentiles. And then Paul rebukes him like, this idea of being saved, and thank you, brother, being saved and the Gentiles needing that is, is huge. So when Jesus is describing bringing them, he's essentially just saying, I'm making salvation available to them. And the way that they're going to be brought is the same way everyone's brought, the preaching of the gospel, hearing that, and believing it. So yeah, I mean, you could think of it that way. I think you could think of it that you, just, you were brought along by the preaching of the gospel. You're hearing it. But if you want to be theological, you were brought along because God gave you grace to believe. And um, this last question is, um, how many years have you been working for the church? <laughs> As of July 1st, I've been a pastor here for 13 years. And I'm glad I'm not superstitious because 13 is not a good number. But I have a black cat because we gangster. That's how we do it. So if I'm going to get in trouble, it's too late. Well, happy, uh, happy work anniversary, my brother. <laughs> it's been, been a wild year and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, no, no uh, break from the grind, you know, for some of us. So. Um, happy anniversary, and um, you know I just said that so that people, if they wanted to get to you and say anything to you, that they could. Um, but happy anniversary is privilege working with you. you. And um, I was um, thinking the other day, I have, I've only done four things longer than this.
So I did K through 12. <laughs> you made it. I, right. So I graduated. I did, uh, I'm a dad, my oldest is 13. So on that, I've been married for 17. And then I've been sinning and breathing since I was born. So those are the only things I've done as long or longer than, than being a pastor. So it's been a privilege. If it, 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 it's been a privilege and it's been fun. Most of the time. It's been fun. We tell the truth up here. It's Sunday and you're at church. So yes. Is that it? True. That's it. Hey, listen, it's July 4th. I know we didn't do a patriotic message because we celebrate the day Jesus gave us independence. So, so that's what we're talking about. But enjoy your day. Proud to be an American. All of that good stuff. We're going to grill if it's not too hot. We're going to chill all that. Enjoy your July 4th. Go see the fireworks. Make sure you get a good location. If you live in Bowie, don't waste your time. They are whack. <laughs> They haven't been good since 2010. Yeah, Bowie Bay Sox, you can't, no matter where they shoot them from, you can't even see them, so who cares? But all right, love you guys. Thank you. Don't forget, one another on Wednesday night, and we'll see you then.